Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to talk about my latest book. That's right, I have a new book out. It's called Quantum Supremacy. And already, the book is making waves. I'm on a book tour right now, hitting San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, Oregon, Austin, Texas, Boston, and of course, New York City. And I'm proud to say that when I spoke at the RSA conference in San Francisco last week, I actually signed 250 copies of my book, Quantum Supremacy. I can safely say that my fingers uh, began to hurt after signing so many books at the RSA conference. But that's been the response. I was in LA just the other day. There were 500 people in the audience, all waiting for me to give an autographed copy of the book to them. And of course, I'll be speaking in New York City as well. So find out what all the excitement is about. And some of the lectures are on the web. So you can actually go to the web and see what I've been talking about concerning my latest book, Quantum Supremacy, How Quantum Computers Will Change Everything. So we're talking about a new revolution in computation. Everybody knows, even children knows, that the introduction of the computer, specifically the transistor, changed everything. The economy, entertainment, mass communication, science, you name it, computers were right there. But now, now we're talking about the next generation of computers. Because the old generation of digital computers may eventually become a rust belt. That's right. We're talking about the fact that science marches on. And we're leaving the era of digital computers. Digital computers, in fact, may become part of a rust belt and heralding the beginning of a new era that we're about to enter, the era of quantum computers. So find out what all the excitement is about. Once again, the book is called Quantum Supremacy. Now, I'm a physicist, and so you may ask yourself a simple question. How did I, as a physicist, get involved with computer science? Well, usually in physics, when we want to explain something, we use equations. And equations are usually sufficient to give us a pretty good understanding of what's happening. However, when you go down to the quantum level, for example, the proton, and you begin to understand that the proton consists of three quarks, nobody on the planet Earth is smart enough to solve the equations for the proton. That's right. Even though we have the equations for the proton, we do not have the ability to solve it because, quite frankly, no one's smart enough. Now we come to string theory, which is what I do for a living. String theory eluded Einstein for the last 30 years of his life. We think, though we cannot prove, that it is the fable theory of everything, an equation perhaps no more than one inch long that will, quote, read the mind of God. So what's at stake? We want to prove it by solving the string theory equations. But I'll be blunt. Nobody on Earth is smart enough to solve the string theory equations. In fact, if any of you in the audience 
ever figure out a way to solve the string theory equations, then maybe, just maybe, you'll be in line for accolades and a Nobel Prize. So if you discover how to solve the theory of everything, what should you do? Tell me first. That's right, and we can share the Nobel Prize money together. Well, so how do we describe the proton? We use computers. Lattice gauge theory used some of the most powerful digital computers to solve for the properties of the proton. And yes, it works. But now we come to the theory of everything, where we have thousands of subatomic particles, not just one, and that's way beyond the ability of any human to solve, at least at the present time. Maybe a super-duper computer, a quantum computer, can solve the problem. So let me sort of explain to you now how we got into this mess. Everybody knows that computer power doubles every 18 months. I mean, after all, at Christmas time, you take it for granted that your Christmas presents are twice as powerful as they were the previous Christmas. After all, why bother to get an upgrade unless that's true? Now, let's say that Moore's Law flattens out. So there is no more increase in computer power. We've reached the limit, the end of the line for the transistor. A transistor today may be 30, 40 atoms across. What happens when it's only one atom across? At that point, you get short circuits. You don't know where the electron is anymore, and the whole thing collapses. Silicon Valley becomes a rust belt. That's right, mass unemployment. Who's going to want to buy a computer anymore when they're just as powerful as last year's model? Therefore, we need to go to the next step. Instead of computing on transistors, we have to compute on atoms because Silicon Valley, as I said, could become a rust belt. In fact, it's a race against time. We're not the only ones doing this. First of all, the Chinese are one of the first out of the gate. They've completed a quantum computer that computes on light beams. That's right, light beams. It's a photonic quantum computer. Not to be outdone, IBM, Google, Microsoft, yes, they too are have horses that are itching to get out of the gate. They're using electrons in order to do calculations. So in other words, the Chinese are using light beams, and in the United States, we're using electrons. And time will tell who really wins. Now think about it for a moment. After World War II, IBM emerged as one of the champions of the digital computer, and it began to dominate the world economy. The world economy, everything from rockets to medicine, space travel, communications, transportation, all of it linked to the computer. Now, quantum computers could be millions of times more powerful than a digital computer. So in other words, Whoever attains a quantum computer for commercial use could dominate the world economy. That's what's at stake. Our future, the future of the world economy, is at stake in this computation. Now, to understand the big picture, you have to realize that computers have gone through approximately three stages. Stage one was when we started to compute on sticks and stones, levers and gears, we would build a contraption and turn the crank, 
and it would add, it would subtract. It was crude, but we had mechanical adding machines. We had the abacus, we had the slide rule, we had the mechanical calculator. These were analog computers and that dominated the industry for hundreds, thousands of years, very crude, but it was sufficient to handle the economy of the 1800s. Then World War II comes along. All of a sudden, the Germans are using a machine called the Enigma to communicate in code to its far-flung Nazi empire. The Allies cannot break it. We're helpless. So Hitler, with impunity, could give marching orders and communicate with his troops overseas, leaving the British and the Allies in the dust. Well, it was up to a mathematical genius called Alan Turing to build a machine called the Turing machine that could crack the Nazi code. Historians think that he shortened World War II by about two years. World War II might have lasted till 1947 without the work of Alan Turing, who broke the Nazi code. How did he do it? By replacing all these levers, gears, pulleys, and ropes, replacing that with electricity, using the power of vacuum tubes to create a digital computer that computed on zeros and ones, zeros and ones, rather than turning the crank on an analog computer. And that helped to win World War II, the second phase of the history of computer power, digital computers that compute on zeros and ones, zeros and ones, zeros and ones. And parenthetically, it's a sad story. Alan Turing's work was kept secret after the war, even though in the United States, people like Oppenheimer were hailed as great heroes in England, Alan Turing, who helped to win the war, got nothing, no recognition at all. In fact, it was even worse than that. There was a burglary attempt on his house. He called the police. The police came to his house and they found evidence that he was gay. For that, the police arrested him, put him on trial. And the judge says, either you take potions, basically to denude yourself, or you will go to jail. Well, Alan Turing decided to take these hormones. He grew breasts as a consequence. He went into a spiral of depression, and apparently he committed suicide. He ate an apple that was laced with cyanide poison, a bite out of a poisoned apple. And we don't know for sure, but many people think, historic, historians think, that the symbol of Apple computers is in memory of Alan Turing. An apple that has a bite taken out of it is the symbol of Apple computer. Well, of course, in the post-war era, with the transistor, it changed everything. The world economy, science, transportation, energy, medicine, all of it changed. But now we could be witnessing an even bigger transition. You see, Moore's law, that computer power doubles every 18 months, is flattening out. Here's a question for you. Would you buy a new computer for Christmas knowing that it's just as powerful as last year's model? Maybe not. 
But the world economy depends on everybody upgrading their computer power. What's going to happen? There could be mass unemployment. There could be layoffs in Silicon Valley with nothing to do because who wants to buy a computer if they don't get more powerful every year? Well, Richard Feynman, Nobel laureate after World War II, understood this, and he said, obviously, the solution to all these problems is to compute on atoms rather than zeros and ones, zeros and ones, zeros and ones. I mean, who calculates with zeros and ones, zeros and ones? Mother Nature? Aliens from outer space? To the best of our knowledge, humans are the only ones in the universe that use zeros and ones, zeros and ones. What does Mother Nature use? Mother Nature uses quantum atoms. Quantum atoms that are based on electron waves. Waves, not zeros and ones, zeros and ones. Waves that could take on any value. So we're talking about a new paradigm shift. So we're talking about entering a new era. An era where we no longer calculate on zeros and ones, zeros and ones, zeros and ones, but instead compute on atoms. That vastly increases the power of computers. Now, two years ago, we attained quantum supremacy. That is the point at which a quantum computer could outrace a super digital computer that was achieved by two groups, one in China and the other one by Google. So quantum supremacy for certain tasks has been achieved. The next step is to get quantum supremacy for all purpose transitions and questions. In other words, you can talk to it and it'll answer all the questions you want. Not just a limited set, but any question. That's the goal. We're not there yet, but think of a horse race. The horses are out of the gate, leading the pack, are the Chinese and IBM, but close behind, close behind is Google, Microsoft, Honeywell, you name it, they're all jumping on the bandwagon. What's at stake? The domination of the world economy. Think about that for a moment. The world economy, the fate of the world economy may depend on which horse wins this race. Now, you may say to yourself, well, all that's fine, but what's in it for me? What can I do with a quantum computer? Well, let's break it down. Already, quantum computers exist. In fact, you can play with one. You can go to the website of IBM and other companies, and you can actually, on your laptop computer, program a quantum computer. So you get a taste of what a quantum computer can do. Then you can actually tackle real earth problems. Problems that have dogged designers because they didn't have enough computer power. For example, think of the Concorde. Remember the Concorde? It was a supersonic jet. It crashed. It was a big fiasco. It never really made that much money. Why? Because in America, people did not want a sonic boom over their house that would shatter all their windows. Who needs a supersonic transport if just rich people use it to shatter my windows? Well, it was never really an economic success as a consequence because they used 1960 technology. 
I mean, think about that. It was like the dinosaur era to use 1960s technology to model airflow over the wing of a supersonic jet. Now we have quantum computers that can reduce the sonic boom so your windows don't shatter every time a supersonic jet goes over. So now another race has started. A race to build the supersonic commercial transport. Think about that. Having breakfast in New York, having tea in China or Japan, and then coming back for dinner back in the United States all in one day on a supersonic transport. Who else is interested? Well, Mercedes-Benz, because they want fuel economy. And by calculating airflow over a Mercedes-Benz car, they hope to reduce fuel consumption. Think of the green revolution and think of the solar revolution. Everyone's been talking about the solar revolution, how it's going to change everything. But you know something embarrassing? It never came. Where is the solar revolution? We don't see solar panels everywhere soaking up the sunshine. What happened to the dream? Well, it's kind of embarrassing. The dream is we don't have a super battery. The weak link is not the solar cell at all. The weak link is the battery. People forget that batteries do not obey Moore's law. Batteries are chemical reaction byproducts. Chemical reactions are extremely difficult to uh, predict and we have no way of predicting ahead of time which chemical reaction will work the best. That's where quantum computers come in. Quantum computers can, in the memory of the computer, model a chemical reaction and calculate what is the best route for a quantum computer. Same thing with medicine. You know, to create a super drug for the market, a new super medicine costs upwards of a billion dollars. How come so expensive? One reason is they have to test hundreds, thousands of different kinds of chemicals in a petri dish expose germs to this chemical to see which chemical will kill the germ. That's primitive. One by one, we have to mechanize all these little dishes to see which dish contains a antibiotic or chemical that can kill the germ. How primitive. In the future, we'll do it in the memory of a computer because the quantum computer will be powerful enough to model the molecule that we're talking about. Disease takes place at the molecular level. And quantum computers speak the molecular language, which is quantum mechanics. So we're talking about perhaps a new way to attack diseases. Be specific now. Let's take a look at cancer. Already now, it's possible to have a blood test which will detect 50 different types of cancer. This is amazing. How do you detect cancer today? Today, you wait until a tumor forms, and then you go to a doctor, and the doctor says, uh-oh, maybe it's too late. That's today. In the future, you'll take a blood test and detect not just 50, but hundreds and hundreds of cancers. And how will you do the test? Probably in your toilet. Your toilet will analyze your bodily fluids, send it to a quantum computer that you don't even know about, and it'll give you a readout as to whether or not cancer is growing in your body. 
In other words, the word tumor may disappear from the English language. We no longer say leeches. We no longer uh, use all sorts of hocus-pocus to diagnose disease. No, in the future, perhaps it'll be your smart toilet, your smart bathroom, connected to a quantum computer that can detect cancer maybe 10 years before a tumor forms. In other words, diseases take place at the molecular level. Traditional digital computers cannot speak the language of Mother Nature, which is quantum mechanics. Now take a look at Alzheimer's. We used to think that a gum of the brain, pro proteins called amyloid proteins, gum up the brain, causing Alzheimer's disease. But then we found that that's not necessarily true. We found that some people have tremendous amounts of gum in their brain, amyloid protein gum, but they don't have Alzheimer's disease at all. So it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between Alzheimer's and amyloid proteins. Now we recently discovered there are two types, at least two types of amyloid protein. One protein bends to the right in terms of its molecular shape, and the other one bends to the left. And only the right-handed one causes Alzheimer's disease. This is amazing. This explains the fact that Alzheimer's disease is so difficult to, to solve because we've been barking up the wrong tree, thinking that it was just the amyloid protein that caused, Al caused Alzheimer's disease. Nope. In other words, it may be possible one day to find cures for cancer, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, because all these diseases operate at the molecular level, not at the zeros and ones, zeros and ones level, but at the molecular level, and that's where quantum computers thrive. Another possibility is to slow down the aging process. Now, of course, ever since time immemorial, people have looked for the fountain of youth. Nope, no luck. Can't find it because it was all hocus pocus and magic before. But today we now know what aging is. Aging is the buildup of error, mistakes, mistakes at the genetic level, mistakes at the molecular level, and that's exactly where quantum computers thrive. They thrive at the molecular level because that's where quantum computers live, at the molecular level. And so we may be able to find uh, ways to slow down the aging process by fixing, by fixing these mistakes, by detecting the errors that build up with time, and then correcting some of them, and as a consequence, perhaps slowing down, perhaps even curing the aging process. For example, think of your car. Where does aging take place in your car? I mean, think about it a moment. Where does aging take place in your car? Well, it's the engine. Why the engine? Because that's where you have combustion. That's where you have oxidation. That's where you have the buildup of waste products. Well, where is the engine of a cell? The engine of a cell is the mitochondria. Bingo. We think that's where much of the aging takes place. So if we fix the genes, fix the genes, we may be able to compensate for the aging process. Now, I'm a physicist. We also realize, of course, that quantum computers can be used to model 
the Big Bang, to give us understanding of black holes. What happens when you fall into a black hole? Nobody knows. No computer is powerful enough to calculate what happens if you fall into a black hole. Well, that's where quantum computers comes in. Quantum computers may be able to model what happens if you throw something into a black hole. Maybe, just maybe it comes out the other end as a white hole. Maybe there's a black hole connected to a white hole that gives you a wormhole, a gateway to another point in the galaxy. This, for us, of course, could revolutionize space travel using something out of science fiction, wormholes to zip across the galaxy. So you see, we're talking about a whole new realm of astronomics using quantum computers. And what about the Big Bang? This is the biggest secret of all. Why are we here? Could the universe have happened any other way? Einstein was puzzled by the question, quote, did God have a choice? Could God have created another universe that is different from our universe? Well, we think not. We think that ultimately it comes down to string theory, though we cannot prove it. But string theory in turn has many solutions, just like Newton's equations have many solutions. There's only one Newton equation, but there are many solutions to it. Which one describes our universe? Well, that's something where quantum computers can come in. Quantum computers are powerful enough to be able to calculate with something as complicated as string theory to give us an insight into why there is something rather than nothing. And that's one of the great questions in physics. Once again, did God have a choice in creating the universe? Then there are philosophical questions related to quantum computers. Why are they so powerful? They're powerful because they calculate on parallel states simultaneously, not just zeros and one, in other words, two states, but an infinite number of states. In other words, an infinite number of parallel universes. So this gets us into almost science fiction. The power of quantum computers arises because we are computing in parallel universes. And then the next question that I often get when I speak is, is Elvis Presley still alive in a parallel universe? Well, yeah, maybe. There is a philosophy called Many Worlds where Elvis Presley is still alive. He's still belting out his songs. It's just that we have decohered from that universe. We're no longer vibrating in unison with that universe. But there he is, in a parallel universe, still belting out those hits. So quantum computers compute on parallel universes. That gives them the power. Digital computers, like the one in your pocket, in a laptop, in a cell phone, it only computes in one universe. Now sometimes when I look in a mirror, I say to myself, is that really me? And I begin to realize, maybe not. Maybe that image in the mirror is an average. An average over the fact that I'm actually existing in many parallel universes. Some of them drift away. Some of them walk out of the room. Some of them go to the kitchen. Some of them go to the university. In other words, I'm only one version of myself. 
Well, if you want to find out more about quantum computers and how they're going to affect your life, then you may want to pick up a copy of my latest book, Quantum Supremacy. In other words, the time when quantum computers, which compute on atoms, exceeds the power of a traditional digital computer by a factor of millions. The world economy, your life, may depend upon the outcome of that question. Well, that ends the first part of exploration. In the second part of exploration, we're going to talk about the first green revolution. The first green revolution was done at the turn of the last century before World War I by Fritz Haber. And he was able to take nitrogen from the air with a very complicated chemical process, extract it, combine it with other chemicals to create ammonia, which in turn is a basic ingredient of fertilizer. He initiated the first great green revolution, which has expanded the population of the earth. Believe it or not, 50%, 50% of all the atoms of your body originally came from plant fertilizer pioneered by Fritz Haber. But there's a tragedy here. You see, Fritz Haber was a German nationalist. He also used the same chemical processes of nitrates to make chemical weapons. He's the father of chemical weapons. So not only did he win the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, not only initiated the first green revolution, which expanded the population of the earth, he also pioneered warfare, chemical warfare. And the tragedy is that many of his poison gases were eventually used to gas his relatives because he was part Jewish. So in the second half of exploration, we're going to bring on Daniel Charles, author of the book Mastermind, about the creator of the first green revolution, Fritz Haber. And hopefully, with quantum computers, we'll be able to pioneer the second great green revolution. In other words, to feed the world without the pollution, without the side effects of using the Fritz Haber chemical process. So once again, in the second half of exploration, we're going to bring on Daniel Charles, author of the book Mastermind, about Fritz Haber, the winner of the Nobel Prize, creator of chemical warfare, and also the man who initiated the first great green revolution. Otherwise, believe it or not, we wouldn't be here. Okay, let's talk about his childhood. Um, uh, every scientist, of course, goes through a process, usually as a youth, where they get fascinated by the laws of physics, chemistry, and stars. Uh, what was it about his youth that propelled him in that direction? Well, the, uh, um, there are stories of him concocting chemical experiments, you know, in his boyhood, 
uh, getting actually thrown out of the house for doing it, but then a, a friendly aunt gave him room, apparently, in her house to conduct these chemical experiments. Mm-hmm. So there was a personal interest, but also Fritz Haber was so much, almost eerily, a product of his time. Uh, and science in general, and chemistry in particular, was the field within which Germany was excelling at the time when he was growing up, the latter part of the 1800s. Um, it was something that Germany, it was an industry that Germany dominated. And, uh, and Haber, I think partly because he wanted, he had this sense of wanting to escape his his town. He wanted to be important. He wanted to rise in society. He wanted to be successful. I think partly he latched onto the thing that seemed to be the path toward toward success. And so he was very ambitious as a youth, right? But he grew up in a Jewish family. So could you explain uh, how his religious identity changed over the years? He did grow up Jewish. He grew up in a large Jewish clan in the city of Breslau. It's now Wrocław in Poland. Uh, he was part of that generation of German Jews who, for the first time, really could participate almost fully in German society. The legal restrictions had, to a large extent, been dropped. Professions were open to them that had never been open to their ancestors. And Fritz Haber just seized on these opportunities with all his might. Um, In his 20s, he converted to uh, Christianity. Um, and this was, to some extent, a rejection of his past, a rejection of his father, uh, with whom he had many conflicts. But it was also a identification with this increasingly powerful incre- uh, German state. He wanted to be, he said, much later in life, in trying to explain his decision to convert. He took it as a step toward being more fully German. And uh, what about comparing him a little bit to Einstein? Einstein also came out of that same social milieu. Uh, Jews, as you, as you uh, mentioned, were beginning to be more accepted in German society. Science was the big thing, uh, the meal ticket for a lot of young, ambitious uh, Jewish youth. Einstein was part of that whole movement, but then Einstein began to reject a lot of things associated with the Prussian tradition. But I guess Haber went the other way, right? Right. Einstein and Haber are interesting kind of counterexamples to each other. They were both German Jews, as you mentioned, but Haber rejected that Jewish identity in favor of the German identity. Einstein never liked Germany much. For whatever reason, Einstein just couldn't abide nationalisms of any sort, and particularly German nationalism. He actually renounced his German citizenship as a young man. Uh, so while Haber was renouncing his Jewish identity, Einstein was rejecting his German identity. He was never very religious, Einstein wasn't, but he, never, but he always felt almost compelled to stand you know, with what he called his tribe, uh, and that included um, identifying with and supporting uh, the Zionist movement and the establishment of, of the Jewish homeland in Israel. And in fact, Einstein renounced his citizenship as, as a teenager, which is something very rare uh, for most teenagers to become uh, stateless. Yeah, unheard of, particularly at that place and that time. And the, the authorities didn't know what to do with him, basically. Right. Well, Einstein, of course, had a very checkered early career. He couldn't get a job. He worked in a patent office. We all hear about these stories of his early days. However, um, Haber, 
was like a meteor in some sense. Could you now trace a little bit his scientific rise? He, he also struggled for a few years after university. He was kind of an outsider. He didn't kind of get on the fast track immediately. But once he did, at the university in Karlsruhe, he just worked tirelessly. He um, made himself an expert on uh, new fields, it seemed like, every year. And by happenstance, he, he, he got his, his hands on a particular scientific problem that had um, been the subject of much talk, this idea of how to capture nitrogen from the air and convert it into a chemical form that would be useful for fertilizer, the so-called nitrogen-fixing problem. And that's how he made his great fame and his fortune. Now, could you elaborate on that? You know, the average person, if you were to mention nitrogen fixing, their eyes sort of glaze over. Exactly. But this is absolutely essential for the prosperity of the human race. We have, uh, what, six and a half billion people on the planet Earth right now? We wouldn't have six and a half billion people on the planet Earth in some sense without the work of Fritz Haber. So explain to us how absolutely essential it is for our, our dinner table. Right. Well, okay, so here's an interesting fact. <laughs> uh, all protein contains nitrogen atoms. All DNA contains nitrogen atoms. Um, today, you know, you look at your dinner plate, you look at your own flesh, and roughly, let's say, half of the nitrogen atoms that are in that food, that are in your body, came from a factory. They came from an ammonia factory using the process, the chemical process that Haber uh, invented. Basically, nitrogen is the fuel that drives intensive agriculture. Wherever fields year after year, or year produce plentiful harvests, farmers are pumping nitrogen into the soil and plants are bringing it back out. Uh, and a lot of that nitrogen ends up wasted, sort of flowing down streams and becoming pollution. But... Um, Around the turn of the century, around 1900, scientists began to glimpse the fact that the world had a limited supply of nitrogen for agriculture, and they wondered what would happen when the nitrate mines in Chile, which is what Europe was relying on for fertilizer, when they ran out. And so they said there's incredible amounts of nitrogen in the air in this form of what they call N2, these tightly bound double atoms of nitrogen. How can we convince those nitrogen atoms to, to, to break apart and link up, say, to hydrogen instead, forming um, NH3, ammonia, which then plants could use, because plants cannot use the nitrogen in the air for food. That was the essential problem, how to capture nitrogen, this limitless supply of nitrogen from the air, convert it into a form that could fuel world food production. Now, as I understand, some bacteria can actually take nitrogen from the air and make it into fertilizer, but that's very limited process. And so we had this bottleneck, uh, the human population. The human population could not grow beyond what we can feed them. And therefore, there was this bottleneck uh, with fertilizer that Haber solved by then taking nitrogen from the air, limitless nitrogen from the air, and making fertilizer out of it. This is right. staggering if you think about it, right? I mean, look right. around. The people you see, your friends, your neighbors, they wouldn't be here. In some sense, they wouldn't be here without Fritz Haber, right? That's right. Well, a lot of things wouldn't, would be different. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, particularly in China uh, or uh, or India or Indonesia, uh, parts of the world that are very heavily populated, that's where humanity would have run into the limits uh, first. North America, we would just eat less meat. <laughs> we could do it without the added nitrogen. Um, but um, but you know, many the world would be different without that that nitrogen uh, fixing, that nitrogen capturing process. The world probably wouldn't have run into those limits until, say, the 60s. They were glimpsed in Haber's time, but um, uh, they weren't really, you know, coming into play until 50 years after his, de- after his life. Now, we always hear, hear the stories of struggling artists and uh, poverty-stricken intellectuals, but here was a man who had some financial savvy as well, and he became wealthy. Uh, could you elaborate? Well, Fritz Haber struck a deal with this industrial partner of his, the BASF company, which actually still exists. It, um, he said, um, you know, so we have this patent on this nitrogen-fixing uh, process, this ammonia synthesis. Um, for every unit of, uh, of, of ammonia that you make, uh, I, Fritz Haber, the inventor of this, will get a penny or two. And uh, that wouldn't have been so significant had not World War I came along had not World War I come along. But at that point, the German military was cut off from its supply of nitrogen for explosives. And suddenly, Haber's nitrogen-fixing process becomes the key to keeping Germany in the war. And they built enormous factories and produced unbelievable quantities of ammonia. And Fritz Haber was getting money out of every, <laughs> every kilogram of ammonia they produced. He became fabulously wealthy, uh, worth a millionaire many times over. So, in other words, on one hand, uh, he creates a nitrogen process which, in some sense, uh, changed the course of agriculture, and then that uh, same chemical genius uh, goes to uh, make uh, weapons of war and made him wealthy, right? It turns out, yeah, it turns out that the first really large-scale use of the nitrogen process was for warfare. And what about his Nobel Prize? It's an interesting story there. Immediately after the First World War, when Haber has really become infamous in parts of the world, uh, uh, the Swedish Academy of Sciences awards him the Nobel Prize for this ammonia synthesis. Um, there were great protests in France and uh, snide articles in the New York Times about it. But um, Fritz Haber took it as a, you know, a, a vindication uh, for German science. Okay, now let's talk about Fritz Haber, the man, his political views, his uh, social views. Uh, Here was a man who became wealthy, in some sense, on weapons of war. However, he also opened up a whole new area of agriculture, which uh, is continuing to impact the human race even today. Uh, What was in his mind? Uh, what What was his thinking process? What made him tick? I think, first, there was ambition. Fritz Haber was a driven man. Uh, He really wanted to be important, to be successful, uh, to make a contribution, to be well-known, to rise in society. He was was somehow compelled to do that. And you can look for psychological explanations in his uh, escaping his Jewish identity as a a young man. Uh, He also was a creature of his times. He believed in technical progress. He believed in technology. and he believed also in his duty to the state. 
he was a patriot, not in the sense that he, as some Germans were, believe, uh, uh, convinced that Germany was somehow superior culturally to other countries. Fritz Haber wasn't that kind of patriot, but he totally believed in his duty um, to Germany. The state's goals became his own, and when the country went to war, Fritz Haber jumped to the front lines. And what about his fate between wars? Uh, many people, of course, lost fortunes. Uh, Germany was humiliated. Uh, reparations bled the economy. And in some sense, people think the seas of Nazism uh, rose between World War I and World War II. Uh, what happened to his fortunes? Well, Fritz Haber remained a prominent member of German society after the First World War. Uh, he led his institute in Berlin. He did lose a big chunk of his personal fortune, but uh, he retained some as well. So he, he really, for much of this time, uh, was pretty well off. Um, but he, you know, he, again, was tied to his country, and he was distressed by, you know, Germany's misfortunes. Uh, he saw the, the, the rising tide of anti-Semitism, um, and his health, also declined in this era. It's in this era. It's, um, it's it was a difficult time for Fritz Haber. Um, he he tried many things and had sort of the growing sense that uh, maybe things were not working out at all for the best. Okay. And how did what how did he view the gradual rise of Nazism? He died in 1934. However, 1933 is when Hitler rose to the chancellorship of Germany. So what happened now in the late 20s and especially the early 30s where you could see the rise of Nazism? Well, Haber was dead set against the Nazis, uh, partly because he was Jewish and the Nazis uh, were, he knew, his enemies. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, Haber was kind of on the right side during the, the 1920s. He was a Democrat. He participated in um, elections in a, in a political party that was generally uh, sort of middle of the road, uh, pro-elections. Uh, he had friends among the socialists on, on the left as well. So uh, he was distressed by the rise of the, of the Nazis, and when they took power in 1933, he saw, in a sense, the writing on the wall. He realized very quickly that... By their definition, he was Jewish. He was not Christian. Um, and when they passed a law saying no Jews can be part of the civil service, Haber was in the position of having dismissed many uh, members of his own institute. He himself didn't have to resign immediately because he was a World War I veteran, and there was an exemption for that. Um, but he um, did the honorable thing. He tried to protect the most vulnerable in his institute, found positions for them outside the country. Very quickly, though, he'd had enough, and he resigned in protest uh, in the spring of 1933. Spent the, the rest of that year wandering around Europe trying to find a new place for him to live, for himself to live. And what about his friends and associates? Uh, you mentioned in your book that his associate that helped to also produce that same nitrogen uh, process tried to help him but there are limits to what you can do, especially with the rise of Nazism uh, dominating the entire German political scene. Uh, but were there any attempts to help him before he went into exile? Well, sure. Both Max Planck, the, the, the great physicist, and Karl Bosch, um, the industrialist, 
um, head of the biggest chemical uh, company in Germany, they both went actually to Hitler and and said, you know, you're hurting Germany by forcing these talented German scientists into exile. And in both cases, Hitler, you know, basically wanted nothing to do with with this. Uh, he, um, according to one account, he said to Max Planck, you know, I'm finished with the Jew Haber. And uh, I read some accounts of that famous meeting between Max Planck, uh, the great founder of the quantum theory, and Adolf Hitler. And Adolf Hitler, at one point, uh, storms off into a tangent and screams and yells and says, I am not weak. I am not weak. Uh, people say that I am weak, but I am strong. Uh, and at the, after that meeting, uh, Planck said, uh, quote, uh, you cannot reason with men like that. Yeah, yeah. I understand that Max Planck just at, decided he had to just leave. He just, he just had to leave the meeting. There was nothing to be said. Now, the tragedy is what became of his work, uh, especially on poisons, after he died. How did the Nazis exploit that technology that uh, Fritz Haber unleashed on the world, especially chemical warfare? Well, we haven't talked too much about his work on chemical weapons. Haber really pioneered the use of poison gas on the battlefield. He drove that forward. He recruited troops. He was at the front lines. He orchestrated the first attack with poison gas in April of 1915. He also was very interested in the use of poison gas for the, con for the control of insects. Um, he developed techniques for eradicating insects from granaries, from ships, from barracks where, where troops uh, were staying. And in his institute, they developed a particular insecticide uh, for that purpose, and they called it Zyklon. Um, immediately after the war, they improved the formulation some um, and called it Zyklon B. And in the 1920s, that uh, insecticide was, was sold across Europe for the control of insects. And after the Second World War started, long after Haber had died, the SS acquired large quantities of that insecticide. Uh, they asked the manufacturers of it to reformulate it somewhat, and they used that poison gas, the, the, the product of Haber's Institute, um, in the death camps to gas millions of human beings. And, uh, and among those were some of Haber's distant relatives. And let's talk about that. Uh, in some sense, uh, what goes around comes around. Uh, he unleashes chemical warfare on the battlefield, and then it goes all the way around, and then it's used to gas some of his relatives. Uh, do you see some irony there? Ah, it's, it's, it's almost, it, it is macabre. It, uh, this is one of the, the things about his story um, that makes it, almost irresistible for a, for a dramatist. Um, people do things all the time, and, it, they, and their accomplishments have unintended consequences, but usually for other people. <laughs> mm -hmm. It usually doesn't come back around to yourself. Uh, but in Haber's case, um, he was an instrument of German nationalism in the First World War. He fed the beast that ultimately turned on him and chased him out of Germany. He invented poison gas, that was used to kill uh, people to whom he was intimately connected. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strange 
bizarre and thought-provoking story. Okay, and also I understand his wife committed suicide, uh, perhaps in the realization that uh, her husband unleashed this monster on the world. But uh, what are your thoughts? Well, Clara Immervar was her name, Haber's first wife. She was a chemist herself, uh, very unusual. She was the first woman to receive a doctorate in chemistry from the university in Breslau, where she grew up. She'd been unhappy for years in the marriage, um, but in 1915, a week after the first gas attack, which Haber had organized, Haber came home on leave, and in those few days when he was home, in the middle of the night, Clara Immervar picked up his army-issued pistol, went down to the garden, and killed herself with it. Uh, she didn't leave a note, as far as we know. Other people afterward talked about how she was um, opposed to her husband's work in war. For what you know, we can't know exactly what was going on in that marriage, but for many people, and I think it's a reasonable thought, um, her suicide stands as a kind of condemnation of Fritz Haber's of Fritz Haber's activities during World War One. Okay, now let's talk about the larger question of science, scientists, war, and social responsibility. On one hand, some people say that perhaps we're too harsh on Fritz Haber, because after all, he died before he realized that his work would be used to gas millions of Jews and communists and Russians and gypsies. But on the other hand, some people would say that he should have been hung as, as a war criminal, uh, because he willingly unleashed this whole era of, of chemical warfare on the battlefield. So there's a spectrum. Some people say, hang him. Other people say, well, look at the, the social context, that they were essentially puppets of governments who funded them. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I have a number of thoughts. and uh, You know, it's interesting to examine the reactions of contemporaries. Uh, there, were, there was a kind of brotherhood of gas warfare that emerged after World War I. Uh, there, some of the leading British figures, scientists in the British chemical war effort after World War I, became friends of Haber's, and they actually gave him uh, uh, comfort and uh, a place to land when he got chased out of Germany in '33. Um, I, I sort of in the reason I wrote the book the way I did, and I think some would probably call it too sympathetic to Fritz Haber, is. I think the spirit of Fritz Haber is still very much alive and generally accepted in our society. Uh, Fritz Haber was ambitious, so are many. Fritz Haber was a technocrat, so are many today. Fritz Haber wanted to solve problems. He wanted to help his country. He put his skills and gifts at the service of his nation in peacetime and in wartime, and I think that's what maybe most scientists do today. Now, you can argue, say, oh, well, chemical weapons was a horrible thing. Chemical warfare was simply, as Haber saw it, the cutting edge. It was the new technological frontier. Uh, Twenty years later, that technological frontier, well, 30 years later, the technological frontier was in the area of physics, not chemistry, and we saw the atom bomb. You know, another oh, 50 years, and the technological frontier today is probably, oh, I don't know, computer scientists and, and electrical engineering. But I think the, the, the spirit of what Fritz Haber did is not all that different from what we can witness today. Well, let's say a few things about Fritz Haber's uh, contemporary, uh, Werner Heisenberg. 
Uh, he, of course, is one of the founders of quantum mechanics. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle is named after him. Uh, the play Copenhagen uh, won the best play in London and New York concerning whether or not Heisenberg deliberately sabotaged Nazi effort to build the atomic bomb or whether he was an accomplice to Adolf Hitler's reach for nuclear energy. The play was rather sympathetic and simply said maybe he was just a nationalist and left open the possibility that he sabotaged Hitler's reach for the atomic bomb. But recently, a letter was released by the family of Niels Bohr, who was Heisenberg's mentor. And in that letter, uh, never mailed uh, from Niels Bohr to his student, uh, Heisenberg, it mentions the fact that you, the student, Heisenberg, wanted to recruit me, uh, Niels Bohr, one of the founders of atomic physics, to work on the Nazi atomic bomb because the Nazi victory was inevitable. And since the Nazis were going to triumph anyway, why not join the winning side? Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. So once again, get a copy of my latest book, Quantum Supremacy all about the fact that one day quantum computers will reign supreme over digital computers that we use today. Silicon Valley could very well become a rust belt and will view the digital computer like we view the abacus today. Quaint, powerful, but really out of date. So once again, the book is called Quantum Supremacy, and this is Dr. Michio Kaku talking about science on exploration. Get a copy of my book.